My name is Anna Grutzner, and my intention is to discuss, embody, and share my learnings in all things psychology, the human mind, mental health, and wellness. This is a platform to refresh my own knowledge and stimulate conversation before I pick up further psychology studies after completing my bachelor nine years ago. I welcome you on this journey of learning, unlearning, and relearning psychology and what it means to be in joy. Welcome back to Enjoy and to today's episode on, (laughs) I don't even have a name for this one, basically what I'm going to talk about today is what I've learnt in my past six weeks back into my graduate diploma of psychology. This one is going to be a bit niche, not everyone will find this interesting, but I feel that if you are someone who's interested in psychology, interested in studying psychology, becoming a psychologist, or if you are someone who just likes top-line summaries of different things, this is something that may be of interest because I have done a six-week term on a subject called Psychology Pathways to the Industry. Although this subject isn't really relevant to me because I'm already working full-time in an industry that I love, I took this subject and I got so much out of it, so I wanted to share some of the key takeaways. We focused on the graduate attributes of psychology students. So these were things that psychology students need to develop, things like values, communication, research methods, and we also looked at accreditation pathways. So if you're looking to become a psychologist, there's two different pathways. There used to be three, but now it is basically five years studying plus one year internship and then an exam. Pathway two is the higher pathway and it's fifth and sixth year master's PhD or a doctorate. So after you've done that either six years higher or five plus one, you can also choose to specialize in any number of different psych pathways. And one thing I learned and one thing that we'll talk about is the fact that there's actually nine different fields of psychology. And in fact, there's even more than that. These are just the ones accredited with APS or the Australian Psychology Society. APS, I'll have to fact check that one. Um, What else did we talk about? We spoke about reflection and this is what I'm actually doing right now. We spoke about the importance of reflecting and how going through that process of analyzing situations, scenarios, how you showed up, how you felt, where you could have done better, where you did well, is such an important part of solidifying knowledge. And the sooner you do it after any given experience, the more accurate your reflection and your memory of that will be. We also spoke about goal setting and action plans. So I did a full episode on this because I found this very fascinating. So go back and listen to that one all around Locke and Latham's study. We looked at person environment fit between a person and their job. So this is all around preferences in the workplace and how that can lead to job satisfaction. We spoke about career development as it relates to ego development via Erickson's eight stages of ego development. And then we also looked at super. People all go through four stages of career development 
from 15 to 24 years old, we are exploring, we're in the exploration phase. Establishment between 25 to 44. So this is where we've got a pretty good idea of what we want and we're just establishing ourselves and building that pathway. There is maintenance between 45 to 64. So this is when you've clearly found your pathway. You've hopefully found a bit of success and seniority in that pathway and you continue it throughout your work life. And then lastly is disengagement. And this is 65 years plus. So this is where you can slowly start stepping away from your career and heading into your next step, whether it's retirement or whatever it may be. We also spoke about career anchors from a study by Sheen. And this is all around needs, values, and motivations that drive career choice. So this is why people are inspired or drawn towards different areas or professions. So it could be a managerial position that they want, job security, a challenge, independence, or another six or so different key drivers or key anchors. We learned all about coaching and mentoring and how these are different. So coaching is all around collaboration and partnering between a coach and a client to achieve really great outcomes and to motivate that client. Whereas mentoring is more of a two-way relationship between someone who's more senior sequentially before them on their career path. So it's a bit of a guidance partnership. And then the last thing we spoke about in this first week was mindfulness. And this is something that we came back to every single week. So across the six weeks of study, there was always a little segment on mindfulness, which I absolutely loved. So week one was all about learning what mindfulness is. And I did an episode on the seven key attitudes of mindfulness. But in summary, it really is just a a way of being where you are present in the moment, focused on your senses and the world around you, rather than getting stuck in thoughts or memories about the past, the future, just really being in the here and now. So that is week one. Week two, we started to look at the different types of psychologists. So like I said, there are actually nine different types. There is a clinical psychologist. I think this is where most of us go or where our minds go when we think about a psychologist. So these are the people dealing with psychological problems, specifically mental illness. And then there is a clinical neuropsychologist. So they look at the brain and all of its functions like memory, learning, attention, language. And a clinical neuropsychologist looks after a lot of brain dysfunction and things like degenerative brain diseases. There is counseling, and this is a very therapeutic type of psychologist that treats a wide range of problems but generally they're less severe mental health cases than say a clinical psychologist. There is a community psychologist, so they look after communities and individuals within them and any systems or structures that may govern those individuals. So they may focus on particular areas that say have a problem that is reduced to that area or specific to that area like homelessness or immigration. 
There is educational and developmental psychology. Again, this is a really broad one and it really relates to psychological problems or difficulties that come up due to being in an age or a stage of life. So they can look after patients in childhood, in school, adolescence, adults and old age. So some examples might be if a child is slow to progress in learning or if an adolescent if an adolescent is having adjustment problems or an adult might be experiencing a relationship breakdown or for old age it might be grieving. There's lots of different problems that educational developmental psychologists will come across in their day-to-day. There is an organizational psychologist and this is all around work behavior and it's really a meeting of both science and practice. So people working in organizational psychology could be consultants for organizations, they could be HR managers and it's all around work and people at work. I found this one really, really interesting. There is forensic psychology. Again, I found this one super fascinating, although it's definitely not my cup of tea. This is all around the legal and criminal justice system. So trying to understand the psychology of victims, perpetrators, and they're often in the public eye, forensic psychologists. We did a big topic on arson and how these sorts of issues are dealt with in society because a lot of the time arsonists are not in fact evil or malicious. Often they come, they're often younger people who have adjustment problems or there can sometimes be abuse at home. Sometimes the fire lighting can be a mistake. So it's a really, really interesting topic to look into. There is health psychology, and this is the one I am so, so fascinated about. Both of my assignments, I chose to focus on a health psychology perspective. Um, For instance, I looked at insomnia, the causes and the treatments through the lens of a health psychologist. So essentially, it's all around the mind-body relationship and how we can use health behavioral interventions to prevent and treat different psychological issues. So hopefully I can keep researching this area because there's so much that I'm loving, particularly around, you know, diet and well-being, how the food and our gut health affects our mental state. There's actually a really great researcher called Felice Jacker who wrote a book called Brain Changer that I absolutely loved. Um, And as a yoga teacher, it's also looking at therapies like yoga therapy and how that can really impact things. So for instance, insomnia, this assessment I did, 95% of general practitioners prescribe drugs for insomnia, even though they have poor long-term efficacy and... They can have bad side effects like drowsiness and dependence. When on the other hand, there is so many great health outcomes that we can implement. So behavioral techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, sleep hygiene. There are all of these other things that we can do and try before we go down that medication route. 
We spoke about sports exercise psychology. So this is all around support, education and training in that sports exercise field. So I think this is a really interesting one for professional sports people. And that is all of them. So clinical, clinical neuropsychology, counseling, community, educational, developmental, organizational, forensic, health, and sports or exercise. Another topic we looked at was groups and teamwork. We spoke about how groups cooperate, what happens when groups get into this thing called groupthink, where they don't really look to outside opinions and they rely very solely on the opinions of the group and the different impacts that that can have. And we spoke about different roles that people can play within a team, depending on their personality types. We also looked at the fight or flight response, which is essentially what we go through automatically when a perceived threat is in our environment. And back in when humans were first roaming the earth, this was generally real life threats that could kill us. However, over time, these threats have become more perceived threats. Things like public speaking or conflict, getting into an argument, a lot of these things can activate our fight or flight response, cause anxiety and stress. And mindfulness is a really great tool to diffuse those stressful emotions. We looked at the importance of critical thinking and seeing two sides of every argument. We looked at unitasking, so efficient task switching rather than multitasking where you have a million different things happening all at once. Unitasking is about looking at what's right in front of you, completing that, and then moving on to the next thing. And that's something I've been practicing. We also looked at research and academia as a career following psychology studies. So these types of psychologists write programs of studies, study, they teach and they research. There are a million and one other psych pathways you can take that don't actually involve being a psychologist and marketing is one of them amongst many others. There's school teaching, entering the police force, becoming a mental health worker, school counsellor, occupational therapist, social worker. There are many different pathways that you can apply this degree to. And on that note, we spoke a lot about personal branding and how you should profile yourself when entering this industry or any industry via interviews, cover letters, CVs, personality assessments, and all of the different skills that are required, like good communication and how you should manage yourself in an interview. One subject I loved learning about was creativity. And we looked at a study by Wallace in 1926. So a long time ago, but I think a lot of this is still very relevant. And it's the four-step process of creativity. First is preparation. So this is where a creative problem presents itself to you in some way. And you are attempting to understand and absorb all of that information. But you don't yet have a solution. The second stage is incubation, and this is where your conscious mind is focused elsewhere. So your mind may be wandering, focusing on other tasks like 
if you're cleaning your house or if you're doing admin or filing emails, anywhere where your mind can just wander and you can break free from that high cognitive load and reduce your arousal. When this happens is stage three, illumination. And this is where the solution suddenly appears in your mind. So it's like a little light bulb moment where you think, oh my gosh, that's the solution. That's the creative solution I've been looking for. And then step four is verification. And this is where you test that solution in a real life scenario. So there's preparation, incubation, illumination, verification. We looked at different theories of resilience and motivation. The first one being Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is a little pyramid with five tiers and you progressively move up those tiers. So at the bottom is physiological needs. So this is just the very basic human needs like food, water, shelter. And then you move up into safety and then into social and then esteem and then self-actualization. And we learn how these apply to your career as well. We looked at Al Delfer's theory, which came shortly after Maslow's. And again, that's a three-step tier from existence to relatedness to growth. We also looked at McClellan's achievement motivation theory. And this sets out that there are three needs to motivate people. And that is achievement, power, and affiliation. Another really interesting topic was the different types of cognitive bias and irrationality that we naturally have as humans. And there are 10. We have the availability heuristic, and this is where we immediately assume that the most readily available thing in our memory is the most accurate way to describe a situation. Secondly, there is confirmation bias, and this is where you use existing information or knowledge from your past to shape your understanding of a situation that is happening today around you, potentially ignoring information that is not in line with what you think you already know. There is the representative heuristic, and this is when we estimate the probability of an event happening, depending on how similar it is to a known situation, prototype, or stereotype that we already have in our minds. There is the homogeneity effect. Don't know if I'm saying that right. It's always been a tough word for me. And this is where we immediately liken someone in an outgroup as similar to someone else in that same outgroup. And we see those people as being really similar to each other while seeing ourselves in our in-group as very diverse. The fifth type is stereotyping. And this is where we automatically assume that people from a certain subset of the population have certain traits based on belonging to a group of some sort. There is the social desirability effect where we automatically assume that we have certain traits that are desirable in some way or another. So we focus on the good when talking or thinking about ourselves. There is the planning fallacy. And this is our failure to estimate how long it will take for ourselves or another to do a task. We assume that we can do it in a much quicker time than we actually can. 
and we assume that someone else will take a lot longer than what they're actually capable of. So it's that two-sided planning fallacy. There is the identifiable victim effect, and this is where we resonate or sympathize a lot more with one single victim who has an identity, a personality, something that we can see and relate to, as opposed to broad statistics. And this is why often it's much easier to cognitively push away things that are happening overseas or away from you that are not in your immediate sphere. Number nine is the fundamental attribution error. And this is where we assume that things happening outside of our world are responsible for issues happening in our inner world. And on the flip side, it's where we identify someone else as being their own problem. Lastly is the bandwagon effect. And this is where we jump on the bandwagon. And if someone has an idea or a group of people have an idea, rather than thinking rationally and independently, we just jump on and follow the lead. So that is all of the cognitive bias and irrationalities of humans. And there are some other ones to touch on, which includes prejudice, which can be both covert or overt forms of discrimination. And Langlois, I don't think I'm saying that right, Langlois in 2000 actually did a study on how humans, both adults and children, favor better looking people or people that are more physically attractive. We looked at status and competitiveness and how humans naturally form hierarchies in society and the importance of leadership and the effects of socioeconomic status on our status as people. We also looked at individual strengths and the topic of positive psychology, which is the scientific study of happiness and well-being. I absolutely loved this subject and I will definitely be doing more on this and giving more airtime to this part of psychology. But we looked at a growth versus a fixed mindset and how a growth mindset is really important to employ because that is the mindset that allows us to think beyond our current situation. For instance, is intelligence something we are born with or is it something that we can develop? A growth mindset would indicate the latter. We also looked at happiness and Sonia Lyab. Bermersky, Laya Bermersky from the University of California found that 50% of our happiness is attributed to our genes, 10% to our life circumstances, and 40% to intentional activity. This one blew me away because I think so many of us assume that our life is dictated either by our DNA, our genes, what we're born with as well as our life circumstances. For instance, if I get this promotion, I will be happy. If I reach this goal, if I have a partner, if I have a baby, if I get married, then I will be happy. And only 10% of our life circumstances are able to affect our happiness. And 40% can be changed through intentional activity. 
And what she found was the correlations between happy people and good relationships, gratitude, helping or philanthropic behaviors, optimism, presence, savoring pleasures, a spiritual practice, physical activity, and setting goals. All things that I am obsessed with and so passionate about. And that leads me into flow and savory. So flow is essentially when we are completely absorbed in an activity and we completely lose our self-awareness. This was looked at by Chick Sent Me High, Chick Sent Me High, I think is how you say it, in 1990. And this is something that I actually feel when I'm doing my podcast. Sometimes I will just sit at my desk for hours and hours upon end. I will not get hungry, thirsty, tired. I just sit here editing, recording, planning. I absolutely love it. And I'm in my flow state. There is also a state of savoring. And this was looked at by Bryant and Veroff in 2007. And it's sort of the opposite to flow in some ways, but it's still a very pleasant and pleasurable experience. And it's where we intensify positive experiences by really mulling in all of the details, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations. And this is something that we do or that we can do and that I do through gratitude journaling. Sometimes I will just write pages and pages about something that happened in my day that brought me joy and feeling into every single little detail of that. We looked at optimism and how you can actually increase optimism, according to King in 2001, by journaling or writing down your best self in 10 years. All of the little details, where you're working, where you're living, what you value, what your traits are, who are the people around you. All of these things can help you build a sense of optimism. Another one is coping with adversity. And this was looked at by Tedeschi and Calhoun in 2004. My pronunciation on these things is absolutely dire. But they talk about how writing about a traumatic experience and how it shaped you can really help with coping with adversity. They said if you do this for 15 minutes every day, I don't know what period over, but it can really help with your own understanding around a difficult event and to help you process that emotionally. Lastly, we looked at self-compassion by Neff and Davidson, and they spoke about the importance of kindness to others, but also to yourself. And they said that if you look at common humanity as opposed to yourself as an individual, that that can really foster self-love and self-compassion. Lastly, they spoke about mindfulness versus over-identification. So this is about being present, letting things come and go rather than latching onto things and trying to rationalize them or identify that as something that is on your path forever. Whew, I'm puffed. <laughs> I am genuinely puffed. That was 27 minutes of six weeks of study, 20 hours a week. 
I got so much out of this subject and I only really scratched the surface today. But if there's any topics that you would love to hear more about, please let me know. I will definitely do an episode on flow, on positive psychology, maybe a bit more on health psychology because that's what I'm absolutely loving. But find me on Instagram, DM me, let me know what you want to hear more about and we can do a deep dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you learned something new. I hope you got something out of today and I can't wait to see you back here next week.